While stores in North America continue practicing social distancing, IKEA is reportedly aiming to reopen its European stores by May. Meanwhile, drone and contact-free deliveries are becoming standard practice in China, even as stores begin getting back to business. Today, we'll hear from retail thought leaders with their fingers on the pulse of the APAC market. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, April 20th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Retail Rundown. We're kicking off today's episode with what you may have missed last week. China reported that its first quarter GDP shrunk by 6.8% in 2020 due to the COVID-19 outbreak. According to Reuters, China's first quarter contraction is the first decline since at least 1992 when official quarterly GDP records started. In Europe, IKEA owner Inga Group is reportedly aiming to reopen its stores by May after closures slashed sales by nearly 60%. In the United States, more retail businesses have had to make the tough decision to furlough workers amid statewide lockdown measures. Starting this week, Best Buy will furlough 51,000 employees. The retailer is still offering curbside pickup during the pandemic, although in-store sales have been halted since March 22nd. Best Buy said its e-commerce sales are up more than 250% in the United States, with half of those sales now being picked up curbside. And now for some good news. With so much chaos in the world right now, we at Rethink Retail would like to deliver some good news to your ears this Monday morning. Our team searched for some positive stories to share with you, so here we go. The brand PopSockets, those handy stick-on grips for your smartphone that make taking selfies easier, released two new designs in which 100% of the sales will be sent to Doctors Without Borders and Feeding America. The shoe brand Crocs is donating 10,000 free pairs of shoes to healthcare workers on the front lines of this pandemic every day. The Body Shop has committed to donating 30,000 units of cleaning supplies to organizations throughout the U.S. and Canada. And finally, luxury brand Dolce & Gabbana partnered with Humanities University to fund a coronavirus research project. The project is looking into the responses of the immune system to the virus and aims to lay the groundwork for, quote, development of diagnostic and therapeutic interventions, unquote, against COVID-19. So today, we will hear from three retail thought leaders currently living and working in the APAC region. Ashley Dudyronok, Sean Rain, and Dave McCoggan joined us from Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Bangkok last week to share their experiences in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm joined by my very special guest, Ashley Galina Dudyronok. You may have heard of her before. She is an expert on all things marketing to the Chinese consumer. She's also an entrepreneur and vlogger. In fact, she has one of the world's largest vlogs about marketing to the Chinese consumer. You can find her at Ashley Talks China on YouTube. She's also a three-time best-selling author on Amazon, podcaster, and global keynote speaker. Ashley, I'm super excited to have you on the show and cannot wait to talk about what's going on in China. And because the virus originated in China and you guys are sort of past that curve now and things are slowly becoming more normal or the new normal, what are some of the takeaways 
for you? How was your company affected? What are you seeing? I mean, in Hong Kong, everything started a lot earlier. In mainland China, things started probably a week or two before even Hong Kong. So what we've seen here in the region is that it is definitely tough for businesses. It is definitely not SARS. For those people that remember 17, 18 years ago, there was also another virus originating here in um, this part of Asia. And that was a very quick kind of shock to the system. And then everything very quickly within four or five months went back to normal, right? And prices in Hong Kong dropped to its lowest. And the whole region, it's not just Hong Kong and mainland China, but the whole region was shaken. Mm. The mortality rate was very high. But the moment essentially it was contained, everything was back to normal. So right now we see that this particular virus is definitely behaving differently and businesses here are affected long term. I think for China right now, a lot of manufacturing facilities, a lot of businesses are getting back to operations, but a lot of people start working from home, which was very unusual for mainland China. Um, Mainland is very digital and right now it's becoming even more digital. People are spending a lot more time watching live streaming videos. Uh, Just basically last week, for example, 13 mayors of cities in Hubei province were actually live streaming to sell their products from their province, from their city, onto the larger mainland China audience. Like, let's say a mayor of Wuhan was live streaming about uh, snacks, about cars, and about uh, property. (laughs) It it is amazing, right? So you see definitely a lot of shifts. And it's going to be very interesting. Uh, What I definitely see is that mainland China is definitely recovering um, first because it just originated in China first. And also very severe measures were taken to contain the virus after the initial first weeks where the time was wasted, I would say. So um, it is definitely going to be a very interesting adjustment period and mm-hmm. we're all looking forward to that we certainly are and you said live st- the mayors were live streaming yeah so yeah, even government to see that officials video. wow i do need to see it and streaming is a trend that perhaps in your agency you've seen take off in china i know it's a trend on this side of the pond as well but is that something you think brands and retailers will specifically continue doing even after the pandemic is Ended? Yeah, absolutely. In China, live streaming is not something new. So in China, this is a reality of life. I mean, in the West, we live stream for fun primarily, but there's very little e-commerce live streaming. In China, because the whole blogger world is operating very differently, they actually started live streaming for fun. So basically, when you watch somebody, you give them gifts, and that's how the blogger makes money. So mm-hmm. if you paid me $100 in gifts, then the platform itself will take 50%, and I, as a blogger, will only retain 50%. And that's a very normal kind of format that works in the rest of the world. But in China, they went a step forward, and they said, okay, live streaming as e-commerce channel is a phenomenal opportunity because I can show you my farm, and I can sell you oranges. I can actually, you know, like in this uh, 90s or 80s, there were those TVCs commercials all over the U.S. where they would tell you, oh, this amazing pen, just today and only today. You can buy one for, yeah. So live streaming turned into that bizarre copy of early 90s um, advertising and the whole advertising channel. And people love it. It is entertaining. People feel that this is also a place to talk to others, a place to do it like together. And the social isolation, it has not uh, completely shifted or changed the way people purchase right now, but it just accelerated this move towards live streaming. So it's definitely there to stay. In China, though, a lot of people do live streaming, as we see mayors of the cities, etc. But 
everybody but the brands are making money. So the platform is making money. Mm. The agencies are making money. The bloggers are making money. But the brands obviously are on the suffering side because it's not for them the way to sell. They are going to sell a lot, but the cost to operate a live stream is very expensive. So you need to make sure that after selling, you're able to get a repeat purchase or you're able to somehow retain your customer. So that's what I think in the West, when we talk about this live streaming in China, people do not understand. E-commerce live streaming comes at a price. It comes at a cost. It's a great opportunity to acquire customers, but essentially it's not going to make or have a positive ROI initially. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a long play then. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Like everything in China. China is a very complex market. It's a, Consumers are very spoiled. They have so many products and services that are targeting them. I mean, they've got a lot of money. They are very excited, but they also know the good stuff. And you need to be reasonable in terms of price. You need to be good quality. You need to be adapt to that market in order to cater to them. So when you operate in such a fast-paced environment, you really need to, yeah, essentially change very quickly. So it is a very interesting market because the upside is very high. There are so many people, there's so many opportunities, there's so many niche groups. You can enter with a tiny little niche product and you can just, whoa, it will be your biggest market. But in order to get there, you need to cut through the whole noise and this is expensive and it takes time. Easier said than done, right? Cutting through the noise. Is there any other trends you've seen retailers pick up that were specifically spurred by the pandemic? Here, I know that we're doing a lot of click and collect and curbside pickup, but curbside pickup, is that even a trend really in China? Is that possible with the infrastructure? I think it is, but what's happening in China, essentially they have those um, uh, contactless delivery service, which Mm -hmm. is actually... It was stress tested during the epidemic when the whole China was on lockdown. So you have people, there are several ways to do that. There are people that can leave your parcel at location A and then you go pick it up at whatever time you want. There were also very interesting ways to do that. For example, there was like you park a car next to your apartment building. And then uh, once your delivery comes, you just open the car and the person puts your parcel in there and locks your car. That that was also (laughs) there. But at the same time, uh, in some cities, it wasn't all across China, but in some cities, for instance, platforms like JD, Jingdong, um, that own their storages and their logistics operations. They have drones, they have those driverless vehicles. So they were also able to do last mile delivery through those digital uh, drone means. That was very interesting to see. And while I think in the rest of the world, people still feel that this is like so far away, the whole drone thing and the whole contactless delivery and the whole robots and the whole vending machines with all the necessities. In China, once the country stood still. There were vending machines with masks. There were vending machines with rice. You could wow. buy rice from from a vending machine and you would choose what kind of rice you want. So again, the speed is really something that sets China apart. And of course, the fact that people welcome innovation, that people welcome this digital arm of the world. And in the rest of the world, we very often feel that, yeah, no, I'm not quite sure. I'm not ready to change so fast. And I'm just really surprised that you said drones aren't a figment of the imagination because a lot of people I speak to (laughs) on my podcast, you know, there's like, oh, Amazon, they say that they'll have drone delivery and that's just a PR play. And you're saying, no, there were successful drone deliveries to consumers' homes. 
it sounds like, or are they too? Yeah, so they have they have a dropping area. So uh, again, for instance, like in Beijing, so they have the park where they drop, and it's not far from where you live. So then the little robot car kind of driverless tiny little car pick it up from there from the drone area and then will bring to your home or to your office building and stuff like that and you will see that let's say in some small villages where it's really difficult to get to those villages so they have much larger drones and they set up this um, uh, landing sites so then Everything that these people, the whole village purchases in a week is delivered to them through this large drone. And it just basically lands in the middle of the village and people go to pick it up. So do those drones fly into your living room and drop the parcel? No. Obviously, there are regulations that would prevent somebody. I mean, somebody can just come here at my window and start shooting movie with me as a main (laughs) character. And I wouldn't be happy with that, right, for instance. So, of course, there are regulations against that. But there are effective routes and there are active deliveries happening in China right now. And it's not only drones, it's also these driverless little cars and vehicles that do between one to three kilometer deliveries um, within, let's say, apartment blocks or office buildings or hotels. You also have the tiny little robots that would pick something up from downstairs and drive them directly to your desk. So a lot of people in China... Yeah, when they order food delivery, per se, they don't want to go downstairs. Maybe they're also worried that the person that brought that food might be infected. So during the outbreak, the robot was the only person that could go down, pick up the delivery and basically bring it to your table, which is very cool, I feel. That is cool. Does the robot, he takes the elevator then? He just... Yeah, he just takes the lift. Yeah. Wow. And and the the robot belongs to the apartment buildings or the office building. So it knows and it communicates with all the systems. And it's really cute little chap. That is. And you're saying this is something that existed before the pandemic. It just maybe was used much more during. Yeah. Right now, there's a huge boost in that. So when people thought, okay, you know, my apartment building or my office building doesn't really need one of those. Right now, they have them. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, again, not every office building has them, but the major ones, the big ones in major cities, absolutely. And in terms of hotels, that's also an absolute must. You need to have contactless check-in. You need to have contactless service. So this is becoming an everyday life. Joining us from Bangkok today is Dave McCon. Dave is the Chief Strategy Officer at AI.agency, which is a virtual marketing research and communications group that works with brands such as Uber, Tesla, L'Oreal, and AIG. Prior to his role at AI.agency, Dave was a strategist at McCann, where he managed region-wide accounts across Asia for several decades. So Dave, you are in Thailand and you're in Asia, so you guys are a little bit ahead of the curve. Can you give us some first-person insights as to what's going on right now in your area? Sure. So yeah, I live in Bangkok. I've lived in now for the last five years. I've lived in different parts of Asia for 25 years, obviously by the accent, I'm Australian originally. But yeah, so lockdown here in Thailand, the real lockdown started about three and a half weeks ago in terms of shutting down all the shops, the, you know, the department stores, all that sort of stuff, just uh, essential stores, that sort of thing. The park shut down for what it's worth in Bangkok. And then you've had added things so this last weekend for most people in america or the west it was easter weekend in thailand it was what's called songkram which is actually the new year for mm-hmm. Thais. so it's the biggest single holiday weekend of the year 
So two and a half weeks ago, the government declared that for the first time ever, Songkran basically didn't exist. They basically said, no, we're not having Songkran this year. But it's very hard to say to 70 million Thais. I mean, imagine saying to 300 million Americans that Christmas or New Year don't exist. It doesn't work that way, right? But one of the things they did do was, I think it was Thursday last week, they put in a 10-day ban on all alcohol sales across the country. And, of course, you know, in my home country of Australia, I imagine in America, in a lot of European countries, the, the thought of just saying no alcohol on sale for 10 days, that itself would cause a social stir, right? Here, it's problematic, but maybe not so bad. But it's also indicative of the fact that governments have to deal with a bunch of local issues that, you know, when you look at it from a big global perspective or from maybe from a Western perspective, you're not really thinking through, oh, oh, what does that really mean? But I was actually on a Zoom call a few days ago with a bunch of business people in Dhaka in Bangladesh. And uh, I happen to do a lot of projects normally in Bangladesh. And they put together a session where it was a bunch of senior business people talking to me about advice as to what they do about their brand in this time of crisis. Mm -hmm. But what was really interesting for me was the way in which one guy expressed the frustration that the way he put it literally was, you know, all this social listing and distancing and stuff, well, that's just elitist Western ways of doing things, which are mm. impossible in what he called the real world. In his world. And what he actually meant is, yeah, in his world or in the bulk of the world, because what he was making the point was, which was something that I've encountered elsewhere and, and thought a lot about, that when you live in most parts of Southeast Asia and particularly Southern Asia, you know, Bangladesh, India, the cities like that, countries like that, that when you think about the population and the way it works in these big cities, so, you know, a city like I live in 14 million people here in Bangkok. Interestingly, you know, from an Asian perspective, Bangkok is sort of like a middle-sized city at 14 million people. But literally somewhere around 40% of those people are day workers. They make their living day by day. In a place like Dhaka, it's, they estimate there's about 6 million people that basically have enough money to last three or four days without working. Now, you know, the numbers are huge. And one of the things that he was alluding to, this guy was alluding to, that is the reality in this part of the world that maybe we don't think about from a Western perspective is social distancing is a white-collar privilege, that basically uh, only the middle class can really do this, that real working people in, particularly in these big Asian cities, and, and but not just the cities but in the countryside, can't do it because you can't sit at home for three weeks. First of all, you know, you're living in very, very crowded conditions, much more crowded than mm-hmm. my apartment, you know, or, or your apartment, whatever. But the other thing is it's just impossible to, you don't have the facilities. I mean, you know, I'm imagining just like you did and lots of people around the world when this all really got serious about three, four weeks ago, we stocked up the freezer, we stocked up the fridge, we stocked up the cupboards, you know, we bought the tons of toilet paper, all that sort of stuff, and it all sounds terrific. But there are literally billions of people on, on this earth that cannot do that. They mm-hmm. literally can't stock up. I'm fortunate, maybe you're fortunate, if, you, if your job stopped tomorrow, you could survive a while on savings and stuff, right? Yeah, but definitely more than three people. days, and I think seven million people just in Bangkok yeah, who... Yeah. In Dhaka, Bangkok, all these cities, right? So uh, the point is that we constantly see, and for example, I just woke up this morning and saw somebody, a friend of mine in Dhaka had posted 
from one of the main markets a photo yesterday where there were literally thousands and thousands of people down at the main market. Oh, just yesterday? Just yesterday. Oh, wow. And whether it's more or less crowded than normal, it's crowded, it's packed, right? And, of course, the string of comments underneath is either, you know, when's that? Yesterday, oh, no, the the government's got to do something, blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is, yes, the government probably will try to do something in a place like Bangkok. The government is trying to do stuff to stop people from gathering at places like that. They're putting very strict restrictions, all that sort of stuff. Other places that are further behind the wave, the Bangladeshes, et cetera, that's still in the process of happening. But you also have different relationships with the government. But you have lots of Asia, South Asia, some of Southeast Asia, the more developing parts of Asia that are still trying to lock down. Some are locked down pretty efficiently, like Thailand. Some are still trying to lock down. They're still going through the process of what can be done and what can't be done. Then you've got other places like Japan, which sort of took it seriously, sort of tried to put off the bad stuff because they were trying to figure out what to do about the Olympics. Now they're trying to lock down again. People are getting very worried again about how it is. And when we talk about retail, and I know this is segueing way far away from what we were just discussing, but in terms of the Western world and more um, developed areas across Asia, Europe, uh, North America, do you see retail opening back up within the next six months? I know it's hard to predict, but what is your general take on the state of the retail industry? Well, like everywhere else, I think the big mainstream retail has obviously had to adapt, yeah, online sales, et cetera, but the online sales for a lot of stuff are not matching would have happened before all this. Some categories are sort of doing really well. You know, little sideline, for example, who would have imagined that this is an absolute boom period for cosmetics? And you go, what? And you're going, well, when you look at online sales of cosmetics in a place like China, in the first month of the lockdown, they went through the roof. My first reaction, like yours, was, what? Wow, <laughs> you know, and you're sort of thinking, what What the heck? You know, so these people are locked in. They know they're going to be locked in for weeks and weeks. And we're not talking about therapeutic skin products or something. We're, we're talking about cosmetics, right? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, makeup, right? Well, what's the story with that? But the truth is that for many people in, in China and then across Asia, uh, they're doing a lot of this, right? They're a lot of talking. China, for example, long before this had been by far, you know, China is in terms of using digital means of communicating is way ahead of the West in terms of how mm-hmm. much people do. Facial recognition, so, I mean, everything tech. Yeah, yeah, but things like vlogging, right? So doing video blogs. Right, right, streaming. Uh, yep. right? Streaming, all that stuff. It's much, much, the levels of that were much higher in China than they were in Western markets places before all this started. And, of course, this has just primed it through the roof. And what we're finding, is, of course, is that, yeah, it's it's all about selfies at home but also basically appearing good when you're doing all these things and when you're loading up your daily feed or your thing but at the same time there are other places and there are other lots of people in the world where this has becomes a thing about this is how i'm going to present myself and there are, as you know uh, there are tons and tons of new videos on youtube and stuff about how to present yourself on zoom what's the right lighting to use uh, where should you sit how should mm-hmm. you do your makeup how you know you know all these sorts of things this is where you see some unusual angles in terms of retail, right, where uh, so how am I going to look and stuff is, becomes important. But having said that, yes, of course, a lot of retail, is, the hard retail is shut, the bricks and mortar stuff is shut. 
people have moved, obviously, sales to uh, Amazon or Lazara, which is mm-hmm. uh, the big e-commerce site in some parts of Southeast Asia in particular. Those places are booming. You just heard from Dave McCoggan. Our last guest today is Sean Rain. Sean is the founder and managing director of the China Market Research Group, the world's leading strategic market intelligence firm focused on China. He works with the heads of states, senior executives of Fortune 500 and leading Chinese companies, private equity firms, SMEs, and long hedge funds to develop their China growth, political, and investment strategies. Rain is also the author of the international best-selling books, The War for China's Wallet, Profiting from the New World Order, The End of Cheap China, and the end of copycat China. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Julia, it's great to be here. I'm in Shanghai, China right now, where there has been a normalization in day-to-day life and especially on the retail side. I've been living in China mostly since 1997, full-time in Shanghai since 2003. So it's 17 years in what I consider to be the future of retail city. I started my company, the China Market Research Group in 2005. So this is their 15th year anniversary. Obviously, it's a tough time because of the coronavirus, but I've been here in China for over half my life now. What are some changes that you've seen happen firsthand, whether that's innovative ways companies are responding or just things that your company is doing to stay relevant, to stay active during the pandemic? I think it's important. You got to remember in 2019, China became the largest retail market in the world. And already last year, China was ahead of the United States, the head of Western Europe when it comes to e-commerce, when it comes to mobile phone services. Whenever I go back to the United States, I feel like I'm in the dark age. In China, (laughs) they've really embraced what I like to call a mobile first strategy. And so at the height of the COVID-19 in China, people weren't panicked. And I think one of the major reasons why China has been able to contain the coronavirus is because people were able to buy online. People had already been accustomed to shopping on groceries, on Alibaba's Huma retail store, or buying electronics from JindongJD.com. So when the coronavirus hit, everybody just sat in their homes, watched online videos on, the Chinese, on TikTok, and bought things through e-commerce. They were accustomed to it. And I think that's one of the things that helped China contain the spread because people didn't feel like they needed to go outside. The second part, Julia, is China is a cashless society. It's Mm -hmm. contactless. People use Alipay or WeChat Pay and scan QR codes. There's no touching like with cash and with credit cards even. And I do believe that that early adoption has enabled retail sales to continue to grow in China despite the coronavirus, has helped us contain the problems. And that's why retail stores in China were only shut for five weeks. Now Mm -hmm. we're opened. Now in the United States, retail stores are entering week six, essentially, of being closed. And why do you think in China, the, I mean, your payment systems, uh, facial recognition technology is so much more advanced. And I think everywhere else in the developed world is headed that way. Why do you think you guys are leading the space when it comes to that kind of technology? Is it cultural? Are there other factors? So China's ahead for artificial intelligence. China's ahead for mobile service payment and ordering really for two reasons. The first goes back 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it was basically the Chinese state-owned banks like Bank of China, ICBC, that dominated the debit card space and payments. 
And these state-owned banks, frankly, didn't care about retail customers. They only cared about loaning money to other state-owned conglomerates. And they really forgot about the Chinese consumer. So in 2005, there were only 13.5 million credit cards in China. Only Mm. 13.5 million because the banks just didn't care. So that created an opportunity for private Chinese companies like Tencent and Alipay to say, look, we've got a huge problem when it comes to payment systems. Right. But is there an opportunity for retailers just based on the cultural differences, um, the fact that you guys have greater social distancing in general and it's more accepted and you guys have advanced technology for uh, contactless payments? Should retailers really be investing in China right now if they haven't already because the economy is going to have a quicker rebound potentially than other economies post pandemic? This is what we say to our clients. If you're generating five to 20% of your global revenue in China, then you should be investing here because you're going to most likely rebound here and China is going to be large enough to offset some of the weakness in sales in Europe or in the United States. Mm -hmm. And since the second half of March, our clients who fall into this type of rubric are actually investing. And our bi- my own personal consulting business has rebounded. However, if you are a company that currently has zero to 5% of your revenue coming from China, you probably don't want to be investing here right now. It's going to be too expensive and too difficult to build up marketing when brick and mortar isn't active, when there's still a lot of difficulties in internal transportation. It's probably better to conserve your cash and self-preservation for your American business. So if you look at it, to me, a company like L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, Nike, Adidas, they they should be doubling down on their China operations. They have great potential. Companies like Crocs or UGG, they also have a lot of potential in China. But if you're a company like Everlane, or if you're a company like Birkenstock, then probably Mm -hmm. you don't wanna be investing here right now your operations just aren't large enough. That makes a lot of sense. And Sean, I know you are the founder and managing director of China Market Research. So is there anything that you would have done differently with your firm in hindsight if you knew the pandemic was coming? No, actually, um, you know, we're actually hiring right now. You know, our business is okay. It's not booming, but it definitely rebounded. But we're trying to get aggressive. I think a lot of people are scared. They're scared out of their mind what's going to happen politically, what's going to happen to the global economy. Will their companies fold? Will they lose their job? And I think in difficult times is when smart executives don't just rush in and invest and try to expand stupidly, but don't let fear overcome you. So my own firm, we're actually going to be moving and upgrading our global headquarters in July. I'm in negotiations with an agent with a big building right now, and we're actively hiring because I think that China is going to rebound quicker than anywhere else. So I guess the takeaway is I understand the fear, but don't let fear stop you from thinking logically. There's still very good opportunities out there in the marketplace. And with that, we'll round out today's show. I'd like to thank my guests, Ashley Dudryanok, Dave McCoggan, and Sean Rain for sharing their insights with us today. And to our listeners, I hope everyone has a safe, sane, and healthy week. Until next time, I'm Julia Raymond, and this was your Retail Rundown. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. 
That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.